If baseball were different, how different would it be? And if this thought haunts your dreams, well, stick around and see what Ben and Meg have to say philosophically and pedantically. It's effectively wild. Effectively wild! Hello and welcome to episode 2064 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Help me out with this PR email I just mm. got. Baseball-related PR email. Oh, so boy. as you may be aware, the Rolling Stones are releasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I don't know. I got this one, too. It's so weird. When you think baseball, you think the Rolling Stones, and vice versa, really. When you think Rolling Stones, immediately your mind goes to baseball. So the Rolling Stones have a new album coming out next month. It's called Hackney Diamonds, which, again, just screams baseball. Right? Yeah. The, the London borough of Hackney, just famous for its baseball connections. So, uh, look, I'm in the target market for this. I, I like sure. the Stones. I'm going to be listening to the Stones album. The single was fine. It's Stonesy, you know? You're not expecting yeah. much from a, a original material Stones album in 2023. Sure. But it's the first one in almost 20 years. I'll be listening. But sure. wasn't really thinking about a baseball tie-in until this was announced <laughs> on Tuesday. So, the Rolling Stones and Major League Baseball have teamed up to release limited edition vinyl of Hackney Diamonds, okay, available exclusively at the Stones website, this extremely limited true collector's item will feature custom art for each of the 30 MLB clubs in pocket jackets housing single-disc baseball white vinyl. <sighs> so you can order basically Hackney Diamonds in vinyl with your team's logo and colors, like the, the Stones right. tongue logo, yeah. but with stitches on it yeah <laughs> and also with the three letter team designation and yeah. sort of the team's colors yeah. kind of so yeah. they justify this partnership here now this is the the interesting part the rolling stones and major league baseball have had a long history together have they that's what I thought. That's exactly what I wondered when <laughs> I read that sentence. And the paragraph goes on to explain that long history, which consists entirely of the fact that the Stones have played in a bunch of ballparks. That's it. Uh, so in, uh, 19, in 1989, <laughs> the Steel Wheels Tour... Which, uh, you know, that was their comeback album and comeback tour, which at the time people jokingly called it the Steel Wheelchairs Tour because they were so old, right? And that was 1989, Man. more than 30 years ago. They're Tough still going. Crowd. Yeah. So 1989, the Steel Wheels Tour came through North America playing half of the dates at homes or previous homes to Major League Baseball teams. Okay, so they played a bunch of ballparks. They had like a little residency at Shea. They played a bunch of dates there. Fine. Okay. The Bridges to Babylon tour in 1997 saw the Stones perform at Dodger Stadium. Okay. <laughs> the A Bigger Bang tour led off in August 2005 with two shows at Boston's Fenway Park. End of paragraph. <laughs> End of long history together between MLB and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> wow. That's it. That, yeah. That, by effectively wild Sam Miller baseball labeling what constitutes a baseball thing, 
if there's any tangential relationship to baseball, it's a baseball whatever, then I guess we could say that the Rolling Stones are a baseball band because they've played a bunch of ballparks. But if that's it, if, if that's all you got, then I don't know that you can say that they have a, a long history together and that it makes sense for this tie-in to happen. Yeah, a history together is suggestive of like a relationship, like a real right. meeting of the minds, an exchange, a tete-a-tete. Yeah. Sending of uh, Christmas cards or, mm-hmm. you know, other holiday cards. Yeah. I don't think that like these two entities, and it's weird to talk about a relationship between entities. I mean, I know that the the Rolling Stones are a band made out of people and MLB as a corporate entity is like, you know, employs yeah. a bunch of people, but like they're like they're entities. You know, they're yes, like the Rolling Stones are definitely a corporate entity as well. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, and like you know, when Arbor Day comes and goes, I don't think they've thought of each other even one time. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> you know the most important the most important holiday. Yeah, what holidays do they have in the UK? Saint Christmas Day, Christmas Crispin's Day. <laughs> Sure. On on Thames, you know, that holiday. <laughs> yeah. It strains the understanding we have. Because, like, the beauty of Sam's definition is that it doesn't require big, invested, central concerns amongst uh, the, the characters of a TV show, for instance. His definition is meant to be all-encompassing, but also uh, fleeting, you know, like mm-hmm. a pennant on a, on a wall. Mm-hmm. It suggests a a relationship from one end to the other, but but not a a, a coming together of rock and roll, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a kind of personal, uh, you know, for all its bigness, for all the uh, arena of it all. Sometimes, like a kind of full of feeling genre, right? Like mm-hmm. rocking and rolling. Ben. Sure. So I I don't think that this makes a much sense at all. And I have to say, if what they wanted. They could have leaned into the the degree to which the art that they attach to this email, for me, evokes the spooky season because Mm. you got the stitches and you got it on the tongue. And Ben, that's disgusting. And, you know, some of these tongues don't look well. They look, Mm -hmm. they look on well, you know, the Rockies one is purple. Diseased, yes. Yeah, they look, some of them look jaundiced. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of them look like uh, the, the, the White Sox one looks like it's ready to right out of somebody's head. So mm-hmm. it's weird that they they picked the less stark color for San Francisco. They put the orange on sort of a pink background with a black tongue. And I think it's probably because it's sitting right next to the D-backs one, but yeah. it makes the SF impossible to read. Anyway, this is <laughs> strange. Uh, of all the, like, the rock groups, why the stones? I mean, the, the answer is because they have something coming out like that's yeah. that's the yeah. you know because the baseball and the stones both right. appeal to old white guys right we understand <laughs> so, but like yeah. if one were gonna pick a band like a, a rock band right to tag to baseball of the currently around guys wouldn't you pick pearl jam because eddie vetter has seemed to like weirdly worm his way into the hits the vetter classic what mm-hmm. are we doing ben i mean we're trying to sell stuff i understand yes. what we're actually doing but like philosophically what are we yeah the, what are we doing <laughs> the stones website shop says this is an exclusive collector's edition baseball white vinyl celebrating the new album and 
historic legacy of Rolling Stones no. and MLB. No, no, there's no legacy. No, no, <laughs> no I reject really not. this. I reject even, it. Even among bands that played ballparks for yeah. no other reason than the fact that they have they're big, big capacity. That's yeah. the only. It's not like the Rolling Stones, like the Steel Wheels tour, was like you know what we want to honor our love for baseball, right? Our legacy <laughs> by, within by the play. game. No, they just no. they wanted to play a bunch of big venues because they could sell them out. So, of course, they're going to go to sports places and arenas and ballparks. So that makes sense. It's not because of some affinity for baseball. But I don't know that you would even say that there was some, like, iconic moment for the Stones in a ballpark more so than others. Like, some bands, I mean, you could say the Beatles are more of a baseball band than the Stones because they have the Shea concert and their final live concert other than playing the roof of the Apple building was at Candlestick. So you could say there are some really iconic moments and outfits of the Beatles associated with baseball or at least baseball stadia. Whereas I don't know that you could really say, I mean, if you're thinking of like sports places associated with the Stones, it'd probably be Altamont Raceway, which would not be fond memories. But I just, I don't know, like... (laughs) Maybe that's the real thing, right? Maybe they're... They're trying to distract from the the historic legacy of the Rolling Stones and and racing areas, speedways, I I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, a very awkward partnership, I'm sure. They'll they'll sell uh, these out probably because it sounds like it's limited capacity and uh, again lots of baseball fans like the Rolling Stones and I suppose a lot of Rolling Stones fans like baseball. Name a more iconic duo: the Rolling Stones and Major League Baseball. <laughs> Elton John and the Dodgers. Like sure. literally, I would think of Elton John and and yeah. Dodger Stadium before I would think of the Rolling Stones and yeah. any venue that mm-hmm. happens to be a ballpark. I, yeah. I, like, uh, Ben, I, you know, we've gotten dumber PR emails, like, to be clear. We get so many bad ones, you know, mm-hmm. we get so, so many. So yeah. I'm like, who, you know, do these work? Like, are people, are people booking off of these? Is, is that yeah. a thing? That's- it's because of the, the famous Rolling Stones song, Paint It Black, which is about throwing, throwing a pitch just <laughs> right at the edge of the strike. So. <laughs> Uh, okay. Anyway, I guess wow. they, they got us to talk about it on a podcast. Yeah, now you yeah, all know it exists. The marketing yeah. ploy worked and we fell for it. <laughs> I I feel I feel had, Ben. Mm-hmm. I feel had. Although I still think that the Rolling Stones one is better than the marketing email we got that didn't have a successful mail merge, but assured us that they could, in fact, uh, market our podcast very well, even though they didn't get our name in there. Yeah, so, it's your know, podcast name here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, few updates here. A, sort of a sad update, Mike Trout. Done for the season, unsurprisingly. Here's the thing. Mike Trout's comebacks from his injuries. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the fact that he gets injured. Yeah. It's how long it takes for him to return. I made yeah. this point recently, but yeah. now that it's been confirmed that he will not be returning from his hemi surgery. I mean, he, he did return from it. He played one game, and then he right. went right back on the right IL back. after Otani got hurt and still hasn't returned. And this is not... 
quite to the point of his calf strain that somehow ended his season, even though everyone expected him to be right. back with plenty of time to spare. But again, like he went on the IL on July 4th. July 3rd was the last game he played. And everyone said four to eight weeks. That's the typical time frame to return. And yeah, yeah, there might be some lingering performance effects after that. But that's when people tend to come back. Right. And I guess technically he made it back during that window. He made it back on August 22nd, but then he went right back again yeah. and then missed another month plus somehow. So it's like in a nightmare when you're trying to get away from something or get mm. to something and somehow you never can. It's like you just asymptotically yeah. approach your destination. You just you get closer and closer, but you never quite reach it or you can't quite escape the thing that's chasing you. It's like Mike Trout's rehab process. He just it's seemingly injuries that should not end his season and yet they end the season it's very yeah. frustrating obviously more for him than for us but but even for us he's now played in fewer than half of the angels scheduled games since the start of 2021 and he sounds frustrated he yeah. talked about how he has a whole team of people he worked with over the offseason to get his body right and figure out how to deal with his back issue and and help him stay on the field which he was doing until this hamate issue which does seem like sort of a freak thing that can happen to anyone at any time and yet 82 games played in 2023 and that's it <sighs> yep that's After 119 it. last year and 36, of course, in 2021. It's just immensely frustrating. And yeah. he's said, you know, he reiterated that he's still planning to talk to Artie Moreno and the Angels brain trust. Can you call it that in the Angels case? But, but oh, boy. he said some boilerplate about how he's looking forward to showing up in spring training with the sure. Angels again. Like he sounds like he's trying to tamp down the trade rumors a little bit, but yeah. it's not out of the question. It's just so appropriate, I guess, that the Angels end this season that was their last hope and last hurrah with Trout, Otani, and Rendon all injured yeah. for some time. That's that's the way it had to end, I guess. What do you even do? Like, so much of this is just, like, either the injury itself is a fluke thing or the severity of his reaction to it seems to be out of sync with what is typical and you know it's not like the guy isn't trying to come back and play no. baseball like he clearly is giving it you know the mic you know his his best and that tends to be pretty good so mm -hmm. it has to be incredibly frustrating for him but at this point you're just i don't know maybe maybe in some ways I'm going to try to find a silver lining here and you can tell me if it is remotely compelling to you or if you feel patronized. Okay. okay. That's what we're going to, in some ways, maybe this is an okay spot for him to land given the realities of his injury history, because what are your expectations of Mike Trout going to be next year? They're going to be pretty low in all likelihood. And I, I think that at this point, that isn't just a matter of how often is he going to be able to take the field, but like we have to start thinking about like, are these sort of compounding injuries that might meaningfully adjust our expectations of what he looks like once he 
is on the field. And mm-hmm. then, like, he's Mike Trout. So he maybe he'll just be like, you silly billies, I'm great mm-hmm. again. And yep. then we'll all get to sit here and go, oh, look at Return of the Trout. And we'll be so excited. Mm-hmm. But is that compelling? Do you find that persuasive at all that, that actually... <laughs> Given that he's been hurt, and we have to acknowledge that he's been hurt, but like given that, maybe like um, a, a lowered set of expectations is actually good. Well, my expectations certainly are lowered, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, would, I tried. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if he actually does come back and have a healthy peak trout esque season. Then yeah. doing that on the heels of all of these compromised seasons, I would be even more excited about it. So, so that much is true. Yeah, if he were able to have just one more year, yeah, one more season in the sun, one more right. season when he plays 150 games and and puts up eight war or whatever, then. That would be nice. I would I would cherish and savor that more, yeah. having been through these uh, few frustrating seasons. So, yeah. yeah. Each injury, I guess, makes it less likely that that will happen, if only because it certainly seems now, even if these are freak injuries, even if right. a calf strain has nothing to do with a hamate, has nothing to do right. with a, a back, although the back seems like it might be more of a chronic issue that he has to continue to deal with. But yeah. even if that's the case, it seems like the consistent factor here is that he just has a hard time coming back from these things. So yeah. when he does get hurt, perhaps, I assume there's some genetic difference and, and lifestyle-related difference probably too, although I would assume he's doing everything he can to get back on the field, but there's got to be some variation in healing rates. Uh, we joke about like Wolverine healing factors for Bryce Harper, but right. I'm sure that there is some difference, right, in right. how fast Mike Trout heals versus Bryce Harper heals or just individuals in general. And right. that seems to be manifesting itself here. Or maybe it's the weight of all the many hypotheticals that we and our listeners have posed over the years being like, how might we hobble this great man? Like, Mm -hmm. if we could, how would we hobble him? And then all of a sudden, like, the fates came down and we're like, look, Mike, we got some, like, bills to pay. We didn't know, Mm -hmm. but here we are. And it's my fault for saying, like, hey, what if Mike Trout were to, like, eat a lot of meat? Like, what if he only ate meat? Would it make him worse at baseball? And so maybe the, he's also, in addition to his injuries we know about, he is, like, um, just eating meat. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's causing other issues, you know? It's as good an explanation as any. It's not a real explanation, just in case anyone is confused. Yeah. But one time I was like, what would happen if Mike Trout only ate meat? Like, meat, 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 meat. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, it's not good for you. Don't do that. Like, whatever mm. podcasters might tell you, that's not a good idea. <laughs> no, no, we're not the liver king over here at Effectively Well. <laughs> but, like, the but... name, you, somebody goes, hey, you're going to be known as the liver king. And that isn't an immediate reality check for you. That's not just like, oh, I have strayed far from God's light. Like, uh, clearly. No, I, I think Ugh. he branded himself as the liver king, so he did well, not object can, to it at all. <laughs> I can, like, I can get down with a lot of weird protein or weird by uh, by uh, american standards right because like the weirdness is de- is definitely culturally determined but like i don't think people should eat filters like that's really what it comes down to for me and the liver stuff it's like that's a filter you know it's like it's like chewing on my air conditioning filter oh i need to change my air conditioning filter Ooh, see this has been a note. productive conversation ben <laughs> yeah 
Well, the liver king's definitely not all natural. He's not exclusively no. eating liver. He's uh, no, taking he's all sorts of uh, performance enhancing or at least appearance enhancing. I don't know if I would even go that far. But anyway, an this is altering, not a liver king. Altering, appearance altering. Yes, uh, altering. That. Yeah, this is not a liver king expose podcast. There are plenty of those out there. What I wanted <laughs> to say, though, is that, you know how we, we talked about the angels all the time when yeah. Trout was healthy and Otani was healthy and there were people starting to suggest, like, is Ben just an Angels fan at this point? He's watching yeah. all this Angels baseball. Yeah, and people I sort were annoyed, of, by, uh, yeah, annoyed I, by that a little bit. I, I, I protested. I was like, I, I'm I'm like a Trout Otani fan or at least mm-hmm. someone who's uh, fascinated by them and, and following them more so than the Angels. And like if you took those players off of the Angels, I would no longer have any interest in the Angels. And maybe right. people thought I was protesting too much. I'm here to tell you, I have not watched a second of <laughs> Angels baseball <laughs> in the weeks since good. since these guys have both been hurt. I mean, they've played some games with playoff implications. So I've yeah. I've followed those games, I suppose, but but I haven't watched the Angels broadcast of those games. I'm not paying attention to them because of the Angels. I'm right. paying attention to them solely because of their opponents. So, yeah, no lingering affection for the Angels. You you take Trout Notani off of the Angels roster, and I will not be tuning in. I have <laughs> confirmed over the past month or so. Somebody needs to transcribe that and send it to the Angels and be like, yeah. oh boy, we really... We really goofed it. I guess mm-hmm. we goofed it. They probably know, though, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think they're aware. And a follow-up on the Padres, who we mm. devoted most of an episode to last week. They are basically donezo as we record yeah, now because they, uh, they lost another extra innings game. <laughs> they Possible. lost uh, another one-run game at some point since we last recorded. And what I was reminded of by Rob Maines, who just wrote about them again for Baseball Prospectus, when we were talking about the year-to-year volatility when it comes to records in one-run games, etc., I noted that their clutch issues or their difficulty in winning close games was not a persistent problem for them, was not something that plagued them last year. What I had forgotten or never known is that they actually had the best record in one-run and extra-inning games in 2022. So. Rob wrote that they were 34 and 17 in one run and extra inning games last year. I I think that's uh, not including duplicates, but 667 winning percentage in those games. Again, with mostly the same team and the the same organization, right? They went from best to one of the worst ever. So, uh, again, I think that lends some credence to the idea that whatever organizational or motivational issues they may have, that is not the the primary problem here. At least I don't don't think it is. I'm not saying it's not a contributing factor, but I just don't see how largely the same group of people goes from best to worst by far, (laughs) just from one season to the next, if it's some kind of character flaw. The whiplash that you have to experience. I I mean, like, I think that after a certain amount of time, my suspicion is that you would be focused more on the feeling of being cursed than disoriented. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, you got to sit there and go, wait a minute, this normally goes okay for us. You know, this is normally, this is normally fine. What's going on? You know? And Mm -hmm. then after a while you'd be like, well, we we're being haunted by a sea witch or something, you know, and 
you know, what do you do? Like those sea witches, they'll come and get you. It's like mm-hmm. uh, Seattle in September. You think it's going to be fine. Mm. And then it's February and you haven't seen the sun in six months. Yeah. I wasn't going to ask you for a Mariner's check-in just out of uh, compassion Respect and, and for consideration. me and my family yeah. for and, our privacy in this trying time. Yes. I mean, um, <laughs> and also ben, these things are, are changing from, from day to day by the time people so hear this. That's so optimistic of you. That is so <laughs> optimistic of you. My stars. What a... What a kind friend you are, really, Ben. Like, yeah. uh, everyone says that about you. I mean, they do say that. Um, I'm being <laughs> snarky, but that is actually a sincere thing that people say. I define it, I, like, if I could pick one word, it would be suck, because mm-hmm. it's been pretty bad. Yeah. I actually was in Seattle, or, you know, just north of Seattle, uh, to see the family this past weekend, get a last little bit of R&R in before I go into my playoff hole and mm-hmm. um you know it feels worse when the mariners are bad when you're surrounded by other people who also care about them mm-hmm. so that's a reality we're living every day and trying to take one stupid game at a time <laughs> yeah that ranger series was pretty bad they had their yeah. chances you know they had some moments where it looked like maybe they'll mm-hmm. and then they they didn't do that so real roller coaster of a season yep I don't quite, I'm not settled into my final opinion of it yet because to your point, like it, it's not technically done, no. but um, it feels pretty close mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so, you know, but who knows, you know, maybe they will just win out. Maybe the Rangers will lose to the Angels. Maybe the Astros will come down here to Arizona and Paul Seawald in a show of solidarity and affection for his former club will just close the door on a a series that the D-backs need, you know. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to look for hope, we might find it there. But looking for hope in the D-backs bullpen is like kind of a tricky proposition. So, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not the best, Ben. Nope would be yeah. the word but um you know <laughs> julio's still good so yeah that's nice we'll return to this topic when all is said and done one yeah. way or another i'm sure i i, I will say this T- try this take on first size ben you okay. let me know if i'm just engaged in like really obvious cope here <laughs> i think that like the the tired take is the Mariners are bad. And the wired take might be that none of the AOS teams are actually that good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they've all had their moments over the last couple of weeks where they have looked quite vulnerable. And their, you know, their moments haven't lined up, which is why there's been so much right. back and forth in the standings. But I was sitting here t- this morning thinking about the podcast and what I wanted to say on this topic because I thought, you know, it's probably going to come up. And I was thinking to myself, like, we know that the Orioles are good. We do know that they are also vulnerable. And I know that it pains Orioles fans to think about their pitching relative to some of the other pitching. But I think it's I think it's not unfair to say that, like, there is other pitching in the postseason that is better. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying, like... It's not all good. 
you know? Yeah. So a lot of it is mostly just like pretty average is probably the, the most accurate way to describe it. And then like you have the Rays and they can do Raysy stuff. And then you have the twins who, speaking of teams that might be haunted by a sea witch, you know, like their <laughs> postseason fortunes are very variable. And then like you're going to have probably, you know, the, the Astros and Rangers and also the Blue Jays who have been weird and fluky all season. And so mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is... I haven't made the staff make predictions, and so I haven't thought about my own yet because the field isn't set. So I, you know, but um, I suspect that I am gonna end up taking an NL team for my eventual World Series winner, and that's not to say mm-hmm. that there aren't pieces of these NL rosters that are also vulnerable. Like I'm not convinced that the Brewers actually field nine hitters at any given time, you know, (laughs) and um, the Phillies, I don't know the Phillies. I'm not going to try to understand. They're just like uh, the vibes are good and I'm not going to ask too many questions about it because some of those fans still scare me. (laughs) And uh, the Diamondbacks bullpen quite vulnerable. They have stretches where they're very streaky. I don't know what I think of the Cubs. The Dodgers have their own pitching concerns, even though they got, you know, so many wins, Ben. So all of that to say, it feels like the NL is the likely home to the World Series winner, but I don't feel like, with the exception of Atlanta, there's no team in this postseason field where I'm like, oh boy, indestructible. Mm-hmm. And of course, no team in the postseason is actually indestructible because there's so few games relative to the rest. But there's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of obvious vulnerability for many of these postseason squads. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up because Dan Simborski just did a post at Fangraphs about how teams are built for postseason success. And Dan would be the first to acknowledge, as he does in this article, that there's uh, only limited utility to trying to divine who's actually suited for the postseason or what factors lead to postseason success. He, among many others, has written about that before and has found next to nothing predictive other than how good the team is. That's the the main predictive factor. And even that isn't all that predictive. But other than that, yeah, home run reliance he has found, as I have found and others have found, is actually a benefit in the postseason. And he's found that's especially true against better pitchers, the best Mm -hmm. postseason pitchers, which makes sense, I think, because the reason why it helps in general in the playoffs is that you're facing better pitching and better defensive teams. And so it's tough to string together a bunch of positive events on offense. Mm -hmm. And so if you can just have a home run, then you don't have to rely on long sequence offense. So it makes sense that that would be even more true against your October aces. So other than those factors, he just, you know, he's tested all of them, all of the momentum and how you finish the season and age and experience and all these things. And none of it just seems to matter at all, except how good the team is really. Even the home run reliance factor is a minor one. So. 
What can make a difference, though, is if you're looking at how the team has performed all season versus how it is currently constituted Mm -hmm. and how the postseason roster is constructed versus the entirety of the roster. We talked about this with the Mariners, right? When it looked more likely that the Mariners were going to be a playoff team. Again, so so generous of you, Ben. What a kind way of phrasing that. (laughs) Yeah, we were saying that it seemed like maybe the the Mariners would sort of be built for the playoffs to some extent, which uh, Dan does not really find to be the case in his projections here. But what he did was he formulated what he expects the postseason rosters of each team to look like and then took into account the schedule and just looked at what the projections would be for that postseason roster versus the regular season roster, which obviously is going to include players who are no longer even on the roster or wouldn't be playing in the playoffs. So giving more emphasis to the, the top tier talent, the top of your rotation that's going to be throwing a higher percentage of your innings and the back of your bullpen, same, and then also taking into account your offense and and how it's composed. And so he has sort of a a regular season roster strength projection versus a playoff roster strength projection. And cruelly, the Padres actually are the team that would have the biggest boost in their playoff strength relative to their regular season strength, which I guess, again, is due to some top-heaviness and the construction of the lineup and everything. So he's not saying they're going to make the playoffs. He has a table of of eliminated teams that he just ran for funsies and to torment fans of those teams that will not actually get to see them in the playoffs. And it turns out that the Padres' uh, projection is like 38 points of winning percentage higher, which is a, a bigger increase than any other teams and sadly for them they will not get to actually show that they would be a better postseason team although if they had somehow snuck in then yeah you probably would have been sort of scared of the Padres even though they're down Joe Musgrove and you Darvish still you would have said okay wipe the slate clean this is the playoff Padres, they could be as good as as they were expected to be. No zombie runner in the playoffs. They've been terrible with the zombie runner in extra innings. So this is uh, starting from scratch. But but no, they don't get to start from scratch. Actually, there was a an article in the San Diego Union Tribune by Kevin Acey, who wrote one of those deep dives, what went right. wrong postmortem articles that we talked about last week. And he was talking about how there's uncertainty about the front office and will there be change with Preller? Will there be change with Melvin? And also expectations that the payroll will be pared down, right? And some reporting about how the Padres aren't in compliance with MLB's debt service ratio in the CBA. And so they, yeah. And so they've got to cut payroll. And though, even though their revenue has increased, uh, seemingly doubled since 2018, apparently there are concerns about the fact that they are still spending a lot of money. And there's a line that says team officials have been talking for more than a year, even as massive checks were still being written about getting costs under control. So, There's uh, some indication here that the spending increases have outpaced the revenue increases and all the owners and execs uh, who were sitting back this spring and saying, this isn't sustainable, I guess maybe are kind of crowing about this now, but it's partly because of the extreme ill luck that they've had this year, which who could have seen that coming, but 
says that they are going to try to get their payroll down to not low, but maybe like 200 million instead of what it's been this year, which is what, like 250 or something in in that range, I think. Yeah, 255, according to Raster Resource which is going to be tough for them because they have all these players under long-term contracts, right? If you look at the roster resource page, then it says 128 million in 2024 commitments, but that's not including arbitration raises like Juan Soto is probably going to be making $30 million or something in his last year before free agency. So it's sounding like per this reporting that they might have to let go or they might be inclined to let go of Snell and Hader and other free agents. And then there's even talk of, will they have to trade Soto? Like, which would be a very sad outcome of all of this. If uh, you could just bet on a bounce back and say they'll have better luck next year, just run it back. It can't help but be better. But if their failures this season force them or encourage them to cut payroll, then maybe the bounce back won't come or at least right. won't won't come as strongly as if they actually kept this group together. Like the core will be together one way or another. Right. But, but. if they have to tr- trim around the edges a little bit, then it's not going to help them have a, a resurgent season where they make everyone forget 2023. No. And it's so... <sighs> It's so it's such a oh Ben, it's such a bummer, right? Yeah. Because there are so many things about the whole thing that are so fluky and weird and that you would expect to just be freaking normal or more more normal. More mm-hmm. normal. Yeah. You know, not even all the way normal, Ben. Like more no. normal. Yeah. Just slightly more normal would have been enough for them. It would have been enough. Mm-hmm. That's wild. And you know, you you think about it's not like they are completely like devoid of any farm system talent they have some they have a couple mm-hmm. guys who are really exciting but like is another shortstop gonna be what makes the difference right their their jackson is that enough mm-hmm. is is a god every time i i have to think about how young ethan solace is it just makes me feel like a pile of sand yeah like a bunch of dust held together by i don't know Sadness about the Mariners, but like, you know, you're not going to look to Ethan Solace to save the franchise. You're not like, this Mm -hmm. is, but like, I can see why people could talk themselves into it a little bit, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that they will. I don't know. Maybe they will. People in San Diego seem pretty happy on average. So like, maybe they'll be like, yeah, you know, it'll be fine. (laughs) But it, it's not like they're the best farm system in baseball and it's not like the guys they have who are really good are necessarily close you know it's not a bad system i think we have them like uh, i don't know somewhere between like 11 and 11 wow what could be in my brain if i didn't have that (laughs) holster cheese but it's a lot of their guys are kind of far you want to you don't want to rush a 17 year old to the Big leagues. I mean, you want to mm-hmm. send him there if he's ready, but like, wow, that seems like a tall order at catcher. So, you know, it's just like a going to be a weird year. I feel like we're going to look at the Padres and they're going to be like a, a Rorschach test, you know, the real yeah. 
precise alchemy that resulted in this like completely bizarre season for them is going to be hard to discern over time. And so we're going to sort of hang our hats on alchemy, hanging hats, bizarre. Anyway, I think that people are going to kind of see what they want to see there. And I am nervous that the narrative that will get the greatest currency will be, well, so why you don't spend so much money. Mm-hmm. Returning to Dan's playoff projections, mm-hmm. your your inkling that it seems like the NL field is the edge over the AL field, backed up by the Fangraphs playoff odds, yeah. which has it about 60-40 that the yeah. World Series winner will come from the NL. It's uh, 59.5 versus 40.4 to be precise, and I guess there's probably a, a point one of rounding lost somewhere in there, but that is largely because of Atlanta, of course. Right. And the thing about Dan's post is that I mentioned that the Padres, would they have made the playoffs, would have had the biggest uh, increase in playoff roster strength versus regular season roster strength. Second biggest increase is the Braves, which seems unfair yeah, <laughs> because they're, they're so good already that they don't need any extra help, but it looks like the, the format will favor them too i guess because they have such an overpowering offense and also i guess because of some concerns about the depth of the pitching staff which will not be such a concern in the playoffs Uh, charlie morton has a finger problem and he's going to miss a little time in the playoffs it looks like but you might be concerned about them if you were starting a season now with some of the pitching depth issues that they've had although seemingly they could just slug their way past that anyway they've had some pitching problems at some points this season and it hasn't held them back but it really doesn't look like it will hold them back in October, given the demands on a playoff pitching staff and how yeah. low they are relative to the regular season. So the Braves are are the team that seems to benefit the most. And then the Astros, which I guess makes sense for similar reasons. There's sort of depth issues there, but yeah. the top of the staff, some of those guys have, have struggled. Like yeah, the Astros, <laughs> they've hardly lately. looked. Yeah, I mean... The Mariners have have plunged lately, but the Astros, I mean, coming off of losing another series to the Royals and being swept by then, and the way that uh, some of their pitchers, Fromber and Hunter Brown, et cetera, have struggled in the second half, right? I mean, they just, uh, they have not been the overpowering Astros of old either, and yet it looks like playoff Astros may be a little better, more strong intimidating than the regular season Astros. And then the Dodgers have a a boost too, which again, we've talked about the Dodgers' lack of pitching depth too. So it's like the old guard here. They're the ones that seem to be built to win in October or at least built to be less likely to lose in October slightly because they're they're kind of just trying to make it work and piece things together. And that might be enough in October. I spent that time saying like the American League is weak. Maybe all the teams in the AL West are weak. And then, you know, you watch their, the stupid Astros are going to power their way through the stupid playoffs. And they're going to win a stupid World Series. And I'm going to sit here saying everything's stupid. But like all of their pitching has been pretty bad lately. Verlander's outing last night aside. Like Jay just wrote about this uh, for us for Van Grassen. Boy, some of that pitching has been bad. And like the the bullpen hasn't been like, 
incredible either. Mm -hmm. Um, They have gotten some very good offensive production. But, like, you know, like Kyle Tucker's been kind of swooning. Louis Mm -hmm. had yesterday. So, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know what to... I don't know. I don't know what to believe, Ben. You know, what am I going to do if the, like, okay, this isn't going to happen, so, like, big humor me, right? Like, what am I going to do if the Mariners do win out and somehow, like, they find their way to, how am I going to feel, Ben? Am I going to feel better or worse? You should feel better, yes. Am I? You got to feel, gotta feel be, a little good when things to? go well. Well, yeah, it, it <sighs> does seem like you were pretty miserable when the Astros were winning. I was so winning. stressed. Yeah, <laughs> Because it was really like, stressed. oh, wait, they're actually in this? So these games matter? Now I'm yeah. more nervous than I was before. Yeah. So you, you can't feel bad when you lose and then feel worse when you win. I mean, I guess you that can. That feels like a challenge, but um, <laughs> no, you're right. Like, that's not the ideal uh, way to approach these things. Will it be the way I do it? I don't know. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the only other teams that have some meaningful difference when it comes to how they stack up in the playoffs versus the regular season, the Rangers mm. also project to get a boost, which, again, I guess makes sense for the same reason, right? They've been shorthanded and trying to piece together that staff right. and their bullpen has just been so thin and so weak. Yeah. Even even the back end of the bullpen hasn't been the best, but right. they've had to overwork some guys because they've only got a few that they can trust so yeah. so you get into the playoffs not that just pitching a world as chapman for multiple inning outings in the playoffs has always worked out well but right. at least you have to dip a little less into the dregs of that bullpen so those four teams braves astros dodgers rangers are the only ones with double digit increases in their projected roster strength winning percentage wise and then the only two teams with projected decreases or declines of double digits are the Blue Jays and the Diamondbacks, 11 points and 15 points, respectively, which I I guess would speak to some depth. Or like the Orioles are eight points down, which is pretty negligible. But again, that suggests that they're not necessarily built for the playoffs, which I think makes sense, right? You look at that rotation and yes, we don't want to slight Kyle Bradish because we've gotten some emails from Kyle Bradish supporters and he has indeed done quite well. Yeah, so. the, the the Bradish heads are they. First of all, they exist. Yep. Which for non Orioles fans uh, might be a little surprising, but is very real. And they are they got stuff to say. Yep. In, yeah. in our inbox and yeah. sometimes in my Twitter mentions. <laughs> He's been good. I, He's I been can't go- can't dispute Look, that. Yeah. No one. No one is trying to disrespect the man. That's mm-hmm. not our purpose here. We don't try to disrespect anyone. You know, that's not really our project. But I think we can, you know, everybody chill. Like, it's fine. We did that. Anyway. Yeah, if, if you look at the, the projected, the, the starting pitcher depth charts at Fangraphs, the Orioles are 16th. Which right. again, they're not bad, but uh, they're not a- great, right? And more. This is what I was just saying. More average than you see with some other, you know, groups that are right. postseason bound. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And granted, that's taking into account the back half of the rotation as well, sure. which might not be a factor in the playoffs. But sure. you look at the top half, and yeah. okay, Grayson and Kyle Bradish, but then 
you know, Kyle Gibson. I mean, yeah. it's just a lot of Kyles, and some of the so Kyles many. are better than others. But, yeah. yeah, you stack that up to the very best rotations in baseball, and, you know, it, it's not Burns and Woodruff and Peralta, right? I mean, it's, it's not uh, – if the Mariners were to get in, it's not Castillo, Gilbert, Kirby. It's not right. uh, Gossman, Brios. Bassett's right. well-rested Yusei Kikuchi, right? I right. mean, there are better better rotations out there. So right. that's all we're saying. Right. We're just saying that the biggest pitching reinforcement move that they made was Jack Flaherty, who is now in the bullpen. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's right. all we're saying. And, like, yeah. that lineup has some boppers. It has yep. a bunch of guys that are – who are very talented. They hit well. They hit – perhaps unsustainably well with runners in scoring position, which is another reason why our projections are like, hold your horses a little Mm -hmm. bit with these Orioles. But, you know, no one in their right mind is sitting here saying that like a group made up of Gunner and Adley and, you know, Cedric Mullins is like a bad group. Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of good stuff on that team. You know, just don't have the playoff experience. That's I'm not I even down. saying that because <laughs> no, you could. We're certainly not I, saying that. Because, no. like, I'm not convinced that we actually know who half of the guys in that lineup are because they all look the same. So maybe they're actually other guys entirely, you know, who are more experienced. But they're also cherubic, is the word that I've seen them described as, which okay. I think fits. But yeah. You know look. the picture <laughs> from a sporting event where it was like variations on the same white guy leaning down <laughs> to wave at the camera? And that's kind of a lot of their line. Not all of it, but that's a, there's a good chunk in there that Just looks a, like that. A, picture. a notable core quartet there. Yeah. 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 And and then you've got Nola Wheeler Wheeler Walker Nola Wheeler Walker Nola no. Wheeler Walker Yeah, <laughs> you've got uh, I guess I mean look at what about uh, Pablo Lopez Sonny Gray Joe Ryan Yeah, that's a Kenta Maeda it's a strong group there right Yeah, I no mean, one no one's respecting the twins it's so mm-hmm. rude Yeah, yeah <sighs> So just you know we're not saying they're bad we're just talking about their relative strengths and relative weaknesses and it's fine like Mm -hmm. everyone that team seems quite likely to well they seem likely to win the east you know and uh Mm -hmm. they're gonna be rested all of the kyles will be so well rested they they could even be as well rested as kikuchi like they could if they wanted to get so much rest so, Maybe. Not everyone can at, at will just decide to get as this much rest as... This is what we talked about. So anyway, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's going to be a fun group. And I think that the fact that, again, with the exception of Atlanta, all of these teams seem to have obvious um, vulnerabilities is, is I think, exciting. Because you're going to have a lot of really, in theory, you have the potential. We don't know. We'll see how it goes. But we have the potential for, like, closely contested series and teams that feel well-matched. And, you know, we can put the strength of good lineups against good pitching and see how it goes. Like, that, uh, you know, I don't—it doesn't read as mediocre to me. It just looks—it reads as more balanced. Whereas we've had years Mm -hmm. where there have been two Braves teams. I mean, not literally, but, like, there have been multiple teams where it's like, wow, this is the real powerhouse, and they're going to just steamroll through. And that doesn't even always happen, as we know. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's— I think it's fun when you got— and we got some, you know, like, assuming the— some of these teams make it like we we have a little bit of a, a a little bit of a mix up of who's 
who's going to be there, I think it's good. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm content with most of this playoff field. My only notes are around the AL wild cards. Like I just have a couple of notes. <laughs> sure. I think. Um, look, I don't want to make Houston fans feel bad because this isn't a knock on you guys, but like. Isn't the best possible scenario that somehow the wildcard teams end up being Tampa, Toronto, and Seattle, and Houston just misses a postseason entirely? Like, that's the best for the sport, you know? I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that you guys should be made to feel sad. I'm just saying the absence of your team would be the best thing for baseball. Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and also, it would lead to the fact that there are no or fewer super teams yeah. and, and the mismatches, the talent differentials will be less than they've been in some recent Octobers means that we don't also have to stress about like, what does it all mean? Why are right. we doing this? And does it defeat the purpose of having a long regular season when right. the great team immediately loses to the not so great team in the playoffs? So yeah, okay. If if the Braves get knocked out early and I don't know, the Marlins make the World Series or something, which look, that would be in character for the Marlins <laughs> to make a World Series if they make the playoffs. But yeah. But we we won't get as much hand-rigging and uh, existential questions about why we watch playoff baseball and does this even make sense, right? And I've I've certainly done plenty of that hand-wringing myself as recently as last October when really good teams got knocked out by less good teams. So so this year, I guess you could say, well, you won't get the thrill of huge upsets, but you also won't get that round of discourse that occurs after the upsets when we all wonder what the purpose of this exercise is. Right. Uh, Apart from of the teams that are currently in a playoff position, the only club with a negative run differential are is the Diamondbacks and the other clubs here. They're not close. They're not squeaking by with like plus three, right? Like these are these are good teams. Um, the only the only clubs on the outside looking in with a positive run differential are the Padres and the stupid. Seattle Mariners. They're not mm-hmm. stupid. I have such affection for so many of the players on that team and so so much frustration with the general experience of them. You know, it's really <laughs> disorienting in my own head sometimes, you know. <laughs> we had a, a listener, Patreon supporter in our Discord group, JG White, who said, did you ever think the reason Kikuchi does so much better as a Blue Jay than he did when he first came over from NPB might be that he was dot, 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 sleepless in Seattle? <gasps> oh, my God. How did we not think of that? How did we not? Like, I'm failing on multiple vectors of fandom here, right? There's the Se- there's the Mariners of it all. There's the part of me that is really weird about being from Seattle because I really like it there. And then there's the, you know, the Nora Ephron. Like, I'm, <laughs> I am humbled. <laughs> all right. One last exercise here for today. Read an article, good article at MLB.com by Anthony Kastrovitz, who... Wrote it. Here's the headline. Here are the 10 most bonkers stats of 2023. I assume okay. you've not seen this yet, so I'm, I'm just going to run these stats by you, and you can confirm or refute their bonkersness, or okay. maybe we can rate their bonkersness. Mm, so, what is our scale, Ben? <laughs> I don't, what I is don't our know. bonkers scale? I, I don't know. I guess just 1 to 10 would be pretty boring and not very bonkers. But The fact that you want to have 1 to 10 in it and not 20 idiot is pretty funny, mm. um, but we should think about Looney Tunes. Like, who's the most bonkers Looney Tune? Oh, 
It's mm. probably the Tasmanian devil, right? It's probably Taz. Yeah, I guess that. But, yeah, that makes but, sense. Okay. Yeah, he's Taz, and then the most, the most non bonkers Looney Tune is probably is Droopy Dog a a, <laughs> a Looney Tune? Is, is, is are they themselves Looney Tunes? Are is that? But uh, is, is he part of the Looney Tunes? Uh, the Looney like, Tunes crew, the Looney Tunes gang. Droopy <laughs> Dog. Because I'm just saying, like, yeah, he's a. He's a, a Looney Tune, right? Uh, is Droopy Dog a Looney Tune? Beyond his Looney Tunes work, oh wow, Droopy Dog is uh, is. Oh no, this is in reference to the uh, illustrator, not uh, Droopy uh-huh. Dog himself. So yes, I think we can feel comfortable saying that Droopy Dog is a Looney Tune. Okay, all right. So so we're saying the scale from Droopy Dog to the Tasmanian Devil, although. <laughs> I don't know what the intermediate. What's the st- intermediate? Okay, maybe we can just go on to ten. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I might call something a full Taz. Yeah, is barnyard dog? Barnyard, barnyard dog is dog. different from from droopy dog, right? Those are dog. different oh, dogs. Barn. But barnyard dog is a Barn- Looney Tunes yeah, character. Yeah, barnyard dog is different. Yeah. And can I tell you another? Okay, I swear we're gonna talk about baseball <laughs> again in a second. So I always mix up in my head barnyard dog and foghorn leghorn like mm. i yeah and i think I, that that's same because, same voice actor i think yeah yes mm-hmm. yes and they're kind of i mean like one is a dog and one is a rooster sure i know that those are different animals like i'm not you know to be clear i'm not confused about that but they are kind of animated similarly in that like they have you know they're mostly white, and then they have a they have bold bits of of mm-hmm. like reddish brown. So anyway, uh, yeah, barnyard dog is a is a Looney so, Tune. So on a scale of one to ten, yeah, <laughs> you could rate the bonkersness of these stats. Okay. okay, I'm ready. All right, these are all through Sunday's games. Okay, number one. I don't know if these are ranked in order of bonkersness. I, I think oh. they're just all supposed to be bonkers, but. Okay. Number one, Atlanta's amazing 501 slugging percentage. So the, the Braves as a team, 501 slugging percentage. I feel like that's pretty bonkers. Yeah. Don't I you think, think so. that's pretty don't you think that's pretty bonkers? I think that's I don't see I'm nervous to to say that it's like a full Taz um <laughs> with the first stat because like what if it gets you know, this is why the gymnasts do better as time goes on in the competitions because you don't want to burn your perfect score early but like that's pretty bonkers that's yep. yeah like it is wow yeah the stat itself doesn't sound that bonkers we're just citing a slugging percentage here it's not like we have some convoluted list of qualifiers or anything but but just for an entire team to slug yeah. 500 it's incredible is, it's pretty bonkers that's bonkers that's pretty bonkers they've already got i think the most home runs of any team in national league history they are on the heels of the 2019 Twins for the most homers ever. They are the first team, I think, to have 300 homers and 100-plus steals. Thanks wow. uh, largely to Ronald Acuna Jr. Wow. And, and they're rated runs created plus. Uh, they have a 124 WRC plus, which is close to the best ever. So it's wow. not 
just that they're good at slugging. It's that they're good at offense in general. That is their greatest strength. But they have a 124 WRC plus. Like the Murderers Row Yankees are at 125. I think they're the only team ahead. The Astros from a few years ago were also 124, and they got a lot of talk of, is this the best offense ever? So, yeah, the fact that the Braves have this 501 slugging percentage and all these homers, possibly record-breaking number of homers, in a not extreme home run and offensive season. I mean, it was one thing when the 2019 Twins hit tons of homers, everyone hit tons of homers that year they hit more homers they still hit an extraordinary number of homers but to do it in 2023 with a a deader ball hardly a dead ball but still deader we're not used to seeing so many home run records being set now because they were all set four years ago so so this is more notable and also this speaks to that it's not that every team is hitting tons of homers they lead the majors by a lot of homers like there's a a pretty big gap between the braves and the next best team like they have 299 as we speak and the dodgers have 240 that's a big gap that's a uh, big gap one of the bigger gaps in fact this article says citing sarah langs that it's uh i think the fourth most the fourth biggest gap ever between the the top team and the next best team and uh like two of them were 1884 i think and then the 1947 giants so yeah they're like they're lapping the league here so this is this is bonkers can I offer another, I don't know if it's bonkers, but an interesting Braves-related stat? Uh, you, mm-hmm. If it steps on something later, okay. you tell me. I find it very amusing that, like, obviously Ronald Acuna Jr. is leading the majors in stolen bases. He has three on Estuary Ruiz and quite, uh, I think, like 17 on Corbin Carroll. So he has 68 stolen bases. And the Braves as a team, like, they're not doing badly from a stolen base perspective, but they are, like, 11th. Mm-hmm. With 124. Ben, <laughs> think about the percentage of total stolen bases on the Atlanta Braves that Ronald Acuna Jr. accounts yeah. for on his own. Mm-hmm. That's bonkers. That might be a Tasmanian double bonkers. Step. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And yeah. and they have, they have uh, eight, I guess, qualified hitters. So eight guys who have qualified for the batting title. And all of them have been above average. Yeah. <laughs> the the worst of them by WRC plus Orlando Arcia and Eddie Rosario at 104 each. Wow. It's like the depth. I, yeah. I guess it it's obvious maybe that they have great depth because you're not going to have a 501 team slugging percentage if you've got a couple powerless guys at the bottom of the lineup. Kind of everyone has to be contributing to that. Right. And they have also joined the 2019 Twins as the first teams or only teams to have five guys with 30-plus homers. And wow. they might still get to be the first team to have nine guys with 20-plus homers. Probably not, but maybe. So, yeah, it's a true team effort. That's just an overpowering offense. Yeah. And wow. uh, as we just discussed, uh, being home run reliant and home run heavy, that is actually a boon in October. Bonkers. Uh, yeah, the the top slugging mark ever, the 2019 Astros, that other excellent offense I just mentioned, 495. And again, that was 2019. That was that was different, right? So, as of the writing of this article, there were 19 qualifying players in MLB with a slugging percentage as high as the Braves team slugging percentage. And five of those 19 were <laughs> Atlanta players. So, yeah, wow. it's really it's ridiculous. All right. 
Number two stat. So so we're given that a uh, what are we given that on the bonkers scale? Oh, I know it's hard to calibrate without eight. seeing the other Let's stats. Let's give it but, an eight. Okay. Number two, rookies with nine triples. So the presumptive rookies of the year, Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson, each of them has nine triples this season. And how rare would it be for rookies to have at least a share of the league lead in triples in both the AL and NL? So Henderson shares the lead in the AL with Bobby Witt Jr. And Carroll shares the NL lead with Cattell Marte. According to Elias, this would be the second time that rookies had at least a share of the league lead in triples in both of these leagues. The first being 1904, when, of course, the Washington Senators Joe Cassidy led the American League with 19 triples. And the Brooklyn Superbas Harry Lumley led the NL with 18. Oh, I don't know. Six feels yeah. like six. Steph- like it's it's like definitely like oh wow, but m- right. not like whoa. Maybe yeah. this is. My- <laughs> I'm introducing a new scale. Whoa, <laughs> um, like a six. Doesn't it feel like it's maybe a six? Yeah, I, I wouldn't go higher than that. I think mm-hmm. if if the Braves is an eight, this is definitely a lot less bonkers than that. I yeah. mean, it's it's uh, impressive that they've both been so good. Like, it sure. deserves representation. If you were going to summarize this season in 10 stats, then it's good to get Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson on there somewhere. Because yes, their, their season's uh, big parts of the story of 2023 in baseball. But, you know, share of the league lead in triples i don't know like it speaks to their their speeds they yes. they they both have uh, a lot of speed and power at least doubles the uh, 25 homers 25 doubles to go along with their steals like they're good all-around players but yeah it's it's a little less impressive and the fact that they don't hold the leads themselves maybe a little right. less impressive yes. you have to go the share of the lead yeah 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 okay number 3 Royce Lewis's four grand slams so we've talked about this. So I thought I think it was one Grand Slam ago that we talked about this. He hit another one. So he has four Grand Slams this season, five, of course, in his career, and he's played 70 career MLB games. So he is uh, obviously the fastest ever two five career Grand Slams. He has only 217 at-bats this year with his four Grand Slams. And Anthony writes that no one has ever had this many Grand Slams in a season of fewer than 450 at-bats. And also, maybe the—this is, I think, the most impressive version of this stat is that he hit his four Grand Slams this season in an 18-game span— and the previous lowest number of games in which a player hit four Grand Slams was 39 by Don Mattingly in his famous 87 rabbit ball year Grand Slam season. It took him 39 games. He had a span of 39 games where he hit four. So for Lewis to hit four Grand Slams in 18 games, that's uh, less than half the number right. of, of games that Mattingly did it in. So I'm going to give this like a six mm-hmm. and and part of it is like uh, do you think that that's too stingy i feel like setting the braves at eight has kind of goofed my scale here i feel you like retroactively I'm, raise it if you want to maybe i want that to be a nine so i have more room okay. to maneuver because i feel like this is probably a seven and part of that is absolutely the fact that i am keenly aware of his injury history yeah. so like he is getting a it's we're just happy you're here at all boost. Mm -hmm. And that 
And then for him to be able to play so well, having dealt with so much and had and having had to navigate so much to come back and just be on the field at all, feels like it it kind of ups the the ante a little bit. And I don't know if that's fair or like totally in keeping with the idea of the exercise, but it's hard to not just give him some mm-hmm. additional boost because like. We didn't know. We didn't know what kind of career this guy was going to have, and we still don't. I guess you know, if we're being fair, we don't really know mm-hmm. what the whole career will look like. But that there has been a stretch this good, and that he has managed to play as much as he has is, I think, pretty impressive. Yeah, this is like in the fun fact category. Like I wouldn't call the Braves just having a five hundred one slugging percentage a fun fact necessarily. Right. It's it's just yeah. it's a really impressive stat. Yeah. Whereas. Lewis, uh, the Grand Slam is over a certain span. Obviously, there's a, a lot of luck and flukiness involved sure. there. He's having a fantastic season when yes. he's healthy. It's not like he's just randomly hit a bunch of Grand Slams and done nothing else. Right, and he then has sucks. A, like, yeah, he's good. Which in some ways might make it more fun, <laughs> I guess, yeah. that, that that were yeah. so random and fluky. But yeah. it's more fun for Twins fans that he's just generally been good when he's yeah. been healthy. He has a 154 WRC+. plus. Those four Grand Slams are four of only uh, only four of 15 homers that he's hit this year in only 58 games and 239 plate appearances. So he's yeah. just been excellent. Yeah. And the Grand Slam part, that has more to do, I guess, with the fact that uh, he happened to hit those homers at those times. And obviously, right. the bases had to be loaded for him when he came up. Right. And I guess you could call it flukiness or you could call it clutchness, whatever you call it. They it's had fun. to pitch to him, you know. Yeah, it's it's cool. I enjoyed it. I was like, wow, another Grand Slam for Royce Lewis. How about that? Whether or not he has some Grand Slam hitting talent, you can still enjoy that sure. something weird and improbable like that happens. So, yeah, I think maybe the, mm-hmm. the best version of this that, that he hit four Grand Slams in a span of 18 games and just blew away the record for that. I, I think that's pretty bonkers. Yeah, it's pretty bonkers. Bonkers. Bonkers is the scale. I got to think about. Uh, yeah. Okay. Hit All me right. with the next one. Okay. Next one. Home teams winning at a measly 521 clip. So the winning percentage of home teams league-wide, 521. So that would be the lowest winning percentage by home teams in a full season since 1999, when it was also 521. So to have a, a lower one than that, I guess you've got to go back to, well... 1994, but that's a strike season, so that was a right. shortened year. You had a 517 winning percentage. 1971, 520. 1981, again, shortened season, 521. So you got to go back quite a ways. 1968, 511. There are only a handful of years with shorter, with lower home field advantages, and all of them were a long time ago or in shortened seasons. So it's the the lowest home field advantage since 1999. How much of this do we attribute to the zombie runner? That's part of it, probably. Yeah. Yeah. We we talked about that with Rob, and that's not the entirety of it, I guess. And obviously we've had the zombie runner for a few years now. Yeah. I don't know that this means that much. I'm trying to think of what other... Factors. That much, yeah. yeah. Anthony mentions 
the Astros, who have been a, yeah. a great team at home, even after the sign-stealing years, we think. But uh, they've got a 481 winning percentage yeah, at home. Yeah, they've, they've yeah. been pretty, pretty they've even, bad uh, at home, they, actually. They, painted part of the batter's eye out there after their hitters complained about it, right? Yeah, and, uh, are, you're just allowed to do that after the season starts? <laughs> I mean, I guess uh, both teams play with the same conditions I in guess, any given but game. Doesn't but it feel like it doesn't I feel like you should not be able to do that? <laughs> like, repairs, sure, but, like, changing, it would be like... Yeah, you can't change the dimensions of your right. in mid mid season. And this so. isn't as meaningful a shift as changing the dimensions, but it still mm-hmm. seems odd to me that you're allowed to do that, like kind of mid go. Yeah. Anyway, if they did win the AL West, which seems uh, improbable but is possible, they would, I guess, be the the team with the second lowest home winning percentage ever. Lower than 518 in a full season. The 2001 Braves had a 494 winning percentage at home and won the division. So, yeah, I don't know. Is this bonkers? I don't know that it's bonkers. I do think it's pretty bonkers that, like, Houston as a team has a 112 WRC plus and such a bad home record. Yeah. Like, that's just funny. I, bonkers. Mm, Like, five. I, don't think it's, I feel like I'm overrating the Royce Lewis one. I might need to yeah, adjust we gotta that down use the whole the scale. Fact. It's like the, the scouts yeah. who don't want to hand out 20s or 80s. We, we got to go higher I, or low here. <laughs> I know. But granted, I, I feel, like, they should all be bonkers to some degree. Right, because like otherwise. List, it's only 10, right. 10 stats. They're all supposed to be bonkers. Right. So, <laughs> But we're, yeah. we're rating, I think, uh, stipulating that they're all bonkers to some degree. And right. We're, we're still looking for some variation here. Yeah. Uh, so maybe like a five. Like yeah. a like a four or a five. Yeah, I, I yeah I wouldn't go higher than four for this one personally because yeah, like four. Yeah, it made me, me go huh. It, yeah, it didn't even huh. make me go yeah. wow or or whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know what it means really. I don't, I don't know if it means it, anything. Yeah, I'm not sure it means anything, and it's it's not that wild. So yeah, all right. Next bunker stat. Okay, well, the Padres 0-12 in extra innings. We've, we've talked about this. This is bonkers. Full, yeah. full Tasmanian devil. Whoa, <laughs> wow. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the, the close games that they've sucked in and the extra inning games. It's kind of a combination of both. But the 0-12, just because, as we've discussed, the only other team to do this is the... 1969 Expos, and that was an expansion team. That was not a good team. That was a terrible team. They went 52 and 110 overall, which you still wouldn't expect them to go 0 and 12 in extras. But if it's a truly terrible team, it's a little less surprising than the Padres, who even going by the the surface record are not a truly terrible game. They're a mediocre team that might under the hood be a good team. So, oh, and 12 in extra innings. That is indeed bonkers. All right. Bonkers. Next, Trey Turner's 29 flawless stolen base attempts. Mm. Right. So as we speak, Trey Turner has stolen 29 bases this year. He has not been caught. And the record for most steals in a season without being thrown out is held by a previous Philly, Chase Utley, who went 23 for 23 in 2009. So if Turner can avoid being caught 
over the last week of the season here. He could he could decide to do that, right? This is uh, he can. It's like the the Ted Williams deciding not to play to preserve the batting title. Although mm. Sam Sam has uh, written about that and how it's different than people expect it to be or understand it to be. But but Trey Turner, he could just not attempt to steal a base over the rest right. of the season, and no one would fault him. I don't think. So this is entirely within his control to preserve this record if he wants to. But he could go for it. He could try to get to 30, which would be even more impressive. So 29 flawless stolen base attempts. Is is that bonkers or how bonkers is it? What did I give Royce Lewis's Grand Slams? I adjusted down to a five. I gave I it a six. Said, I yeah, gave it a six-ish, seven. Th- six-ish, I think. <laughs> Not getting a lot of scouting fidelity here. I feel like this is... It might be the same. I feel like the fact that he has the ability to control this is somehow working in the same way as Royce Lewis not having the ability to control hitting a home run when he does. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, Trey Turner could just be like, I want to have a perfect soul. Like, I just want it to be perfect. I'm not going to steal anymore. And then he could not steal anymore. And then it's... You know, it's perfect. Yeah. Where, you know, just like Royce Lewis can't control who's on base when he goes up there and hits a home run. So, but it is pretty, it's pretty cool. And he is such a cool base runner, you know, but more when he's like going home. That's when the Mm -hmm. Trey Turner like moves are at their, at their peak, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty cool. Like, that's pretty cool. And his season was so bad and then it got so much better. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah. This is one where I do subtract some bonkers points because of the new rules, which I I think have clearly enabled this or, or helped this out. Like, I don't subtract so much from Ronald Acuna's season because him going 40 70 or or potentially that's that's super impressive even given the new rules making it easier to steal bases because he's just so far uh, he's like you know leading the league right with how many he's stolen and he's been so aggressive and he, he's taking advantage of those rules more than anyone else right so even if you were to discount it and say okay 40 70 maybe it would have been 40 50 or something in a previous season that's still pretty amazing so but this one like would he have done this if not for the new rules, probably not, right? Like, he, yeah. he either would have stolen fewer overall or he would have been caught at some point, probably. Right. So this is one that I I doubt would have happened without the new rules. And granted, like, everyone gets to play under these new rules. But that, I think, hurts the bonkersness to me. Yeah. Like, the exchange rate of, you know, 29 for 29 versus 23 for 23 in 2009. I don't know if that actually is more impressive. Maybe on a percentage basis it still is. But, yeah, it's 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 worth noting. It's uh, It deserves to be on the list, I think. But I'm going to give it a pretty low bonkers rating, I think, just because of that. I think that, like, you have to acknowledge that there is some adjustment, new rule adjustment that needs to take place when it comes to stolen base stuff. But, you know, with guys who are good at stealing bases, I discount it less. I do discount it less. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like Corbin Carroll's just really fast. Like, he's just so fast, you know. Ronald Acuna Jr. is just, like, fast and a really good base runner. Like, some of these is the exact number, the result of some of this stuff like yeah sure that's definitely contributing that would be silly to deny but it's not 
it's not That's, all that, you know? No. It's the thing is, though, that this depends on flawlessness. This depends sure. on perfection. If sure. you've been caught one time, right. it would, it be would done. not be on the list, right? No, and, it would be done. And Trey Turner has always been a, a excellent percentage base dealer. I mean, yes, he has. Really, really good. Like, he's, uh, for his career, he has stolen 259 bases and been caught a mere 42 times. And so, prior to this season... He was uh, what two thirty and and forty two. I mean that's still fantastic, right? But like last year, he was uh, twenty seven for thirty, which is great. And uh, twenty twenty one, he was thirty two for thirty seven, which is excellent. And twenty twenty, he was twelve for sixteen. And twenty nineteen, he was thirty five for forty. Like he's always been good at this, but he's always been caught a couple times or a few times in a season. And the fact that he's been caught zero times this season, that's what makes this stat. And I'm guessing that that would not have happened if not for the new rules. Yeah. So I don't know. That just, I guess it's like emblematic of 2023 and we're looking for bonkers stats in 2023, but it just, it saps some of the, the luster for me. All right. Seventh stat, Kyle Schwarber is hitting 197 and still making a big impact. So that's, it's a little imprecise i suppose in in the phrasing the framing you know he's i guess we should say batting i would say batting if i'm referring specifically to his his batting average but <laughs> Kyle Schwerber's hitting slash batting 197 and still making a big impact so within this section here anthony goes for a, a couple more specific and precise fun facts so he's hit 45 homers so mm-hmm. the current record for most home runs by a player with a batting average of 200 or lower was 38 by Joey Gallo in 2021 when he batted 199. So, okay, most homers by someone batting under 200. That's uh, He's cleared that bar by a lot unless he gets over 200 here in the last week. So is that bonkers, I guess? That's, that's one formulation of this. Also, in 483 plate appearances as a leadoff man, Schwarber has batted 206, and the only player with that many leadoff plate appearances and a lower batting average was Dick Schofield, 199 in 483 plate appearances of the Pirates and Giants in 1965. He also gets on base at a reasonable 345 clip, so how many other players with a minimum of 300 plate appearances in the leadoff spot have batted below 210 as a leadoff man but have put up at least a 340 OBP? Just to Goat Anderson of no. the 1907 Stop time. It. Stop it. You're making that up. Goat Anderson. Goat Anderson. Goat. Yeah. Goat Anderson. Yeah. And that was before Goat stood for greatest of all time. So I don't know if he was Goat because he was like the Goat, as in like he's the, the scapegoat, like the, the guy who blew it. Goat Anderson played for one season in the majors for the Pirates in 1907, 127 games, 77 OPS plus. He had a 0.4 war and then was never seen in the majors again. Goat Anderson. So Goat Anderson and then Floyd Baker of the 1948 White Sox. And those guys combined for one home run by Goat in in those seasons, whereas Schwarber has hit 32 as a leadoff man. So 
this is sort of a soup of stats, but the fact that he's batting under 200 and, and is still, I mean, we thought it was going to be a bonker stat that he was, that he had so many home runs and still was like replacement level or sub replacement level when we talked about it. He's a little bit above replacement level now. That would have been a bonker stat. So is it a bonker stat that he's batting under 200 and still has, I guess, like the, the home run part of it? I, no, I, yeah. I'm giving this like a three. There's something bonkers about Kyle Schwerber's season yes. as a whole. Yes, I agree with that. I just don't know <laughs> if this is quite nailing the the thing about his whole deal that I find bonkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a just a holistic. I mean, it's right. It's it's the fact that he's a leadoff batter. It's the fact that he's hit forty five homers with a sub two hundred bat like that. I guess most home runs by someone with a sub two hundred batting, except that batting under two hundred. I, I like it. It's not entirely. It, in a sense, those things are not directly connected. Like, you can still hit for a lot of power. I guess the fact that it's hard to have a lot of hits of any kind if you're batting under 200, and then it's hard to, like, get enough playing time to hit 45 homers if you're batting under 200. The fact that he's batting under 200 and is a leadoff guy who's getting all these plate appearances, that is sort of bonkers that Kyle Schwarber is a leadoff man at all, although that's that's not new necessarily. Uh, the whole thing is bonkers, <laughs> but but it's hard to reduce it to a single stat, I think. Yeah, and we don't want to reduce it to war either. Just to pick another mm. like single stat that we could... But you see, like, you should have picked... The war one, and then we could have had yeah. a conversation that was more all-encompassing. But also, we've already had that conversation, so this instead mm-hmm. we got to hear about a guy named Goat. Yeah. All right, number eight, Clayton Kershaw's team leading 126 and a third innings pitched. So he will have the lowest innings total ever for a leader on a division-winning team. The previous low was 153 and a third for Mike Fires on the 2017 sign-stealing Astros. I guess it's it's reasonably bonkers, just because... But, like, is it, though? Like, yeah. you uh, know, it's like a four. Is it yeah. a four, Ben? Maybe, yeah. Cause any, now, we're, now we're over-utilizing the low end of the scale. <laughs> any stat that has to do with dwindling innings totals... right. It doesn't impress me that much because that's just – it's been happening for a while now. It's like, you know, anything that's like, oh, strikeouts are going up, innings pitched are going down. Like, yeah, we know. There's just a, a fatigue with that. Right. So the fact that the Dodgers are still going to win so many games with this staff that's just been pieced together and everyone's been hurt or the fact that Clayton Kershaw as uh, – undurable as he's been in this latter stage of his career when he's still been highly effective but but not very durable that he's still leading the Dodgers in innings pitched that's like kind of a wow ish yeah but yeah I don't know right now he has the same innings total that he did last season exactly although I guess if he pitches again that won't be the case but yeah I don't know I'm I'm continuing to be like bowled over by Clayton Kershaw's effectiveness sure. in, in this post-peak decline phase of Clayton Kershaw where he has like a two-something ERA every year. But 
Yeah, this this stat doesn't really do it for me. Sorry. All right. Yeah. Second to last stat, Shohei Otani's injury plagued ten war. So he has the the fewest games played in a ten war season. This is baseball reference war, obviously. The the wars, uh, as some of our Patreon supporters have noticed, have continued to fluctuate slightly with Otani even since he's been playing, right? Like he's been at 9.9, he's at 10.1 right now because obviously it's relative to replacement level and that changes regardless of whether he's playing. So he's still going up or down slightly. But 135 games, fewest games played in a 10-war season according to baseball reference in ALNL history, excluding full-time pitchers. Of course, we're not going to get into as many games. So is that bonkers? I, the fact that he's gotten to 10 war and has missed all this time at the end of the season. It's pretty bonkers, I think. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's I think it. Wow, Ben, you're not like, see, <laughs> this is how we know you're an honest man. You know, this is how we know that you're. You're 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 in it to tell truths, you know. You're not just here to be like a partisan. <laughs> you're like it's medium bonkers, you know. This this incredible yeah. unicorn of a man. He's just a you know just <laughs> medium bonkers. His existence is bonkers. That's a a ten. Okay, fair. The, the fact that he exists and that he could have a season like this is bonkers. Certainly, don't want to discount that. But I, I think what kind of does away with the bonkersness here is that the previous low for games played in a 10-war season was only one game more. Mookie Betts played 136 games in his 2018 MVP season, and he had 10.7 war that year. So he played one more game and had 0.7 war more, which I guess Otani has had 0.7 war games. But but that detracts a little bit from the specialness. Sure. Now, there was a, a supplementary stat in here that he is likely to win the MVP award despite missing his team's final 25 games. If so, that would be the most games missed by an MVP at the end of the season, according to Sarah Langs. Mike Trout, in his 2019 MVP season, missed the final 19 games. So that's like, it's not just that he missed games, but he missed them in a bunch at the end, which I, I guess like... You might think that you have to have a strong finish to convince the MVP voters that, okay, that, you know, like it's going to come down to the wire. You got to finish strong. So the fact that he sat out almost all of September and is still almost certainly going to win the thing, that's, I guess, kind of bonkers. Like that just yeah. comes down to how he's he's been so much better than everyone else that even if you spot them a month, they can't catch up to him. So that's, I guess there's something, yeah, there, it's, it's pretty bonkers. <laughs> it's, it's not the most bonkers. It's just the general Otani is, is bonkers that like any specific Otani stat we've, we've talked about how it's just like evolved past the need for fun facts or stats about Otani. It's just like, yeah, look, he's like the best at both things or one of the best at both things. Like I don't even need a stat to sum yeah. that up. We know. Yeah. All right. And lastly... The return of the 2020 player, mm. so 17 2020 players and counting as of the writing of this article, 20 homers, 20 steals, too shy of the record set in 1999 
And entering the final week, there are enough players near those parameters. Chaz McCormick, one stolen base away. Xander Bogarts is a homer and two steals away. Josh Lowe and Christian Yelich are both one homer away. So that record could be broken. And as Anthony notes, it's a product of the new rules environment. Last year, there were only 24 players with 20 steals, period. Whereas this year, there are already 49. But he asserts... Still bonkers. So is it still bonkers that we have a near record and potentially record number of 2020 players? I mean, like, it's just so hard to be, like, super excited about it because of the rule changes. But like I said, like some of the guys doing that are like, Ben, what do you think? I don't know, man. I feel like I'm underrating stuff now. I feel like I'm too low. Yeah. I don't think it's bonkers. I think it's emblematic of the season. Yeah, I that's think, a better word. Yeah, if you wanted to say the 10 stats that sum up 2023 or most representative of baseball in 2023, then I think, yeah, because as we covered in a recent stat blast, just going by power speed number, right. this has been an extraordinary season. So yeah. it's been a, a hallmark of baseball in 2023 is that there's a lot of power and there's a lot of speed. So this stat representing that I don't think that's that bonkers. It's like, yeah, that's the brand of baseball we're seeing. Like, this is emblematic of baseball. I don't think it's bonkers, but I think it's telling. It's a a good stat. It's just, it it, it doesn't bowl me over. Yeah, it's, so so was the, so I guess Atlanta was the highest. Yeah. Was the closest to, wow. That is truly, truly bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think Otani is next for me. I didn't put a number Mm -hmm. on it, but like that, that's next. Mm Mm-hmm. For me, I think. Yeah, mm. and then Padrezo in 12, I think, is up there. Yeah, but. oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, I think that that and Otani get, like, maybe the same. Mm-hmm. I might be over-adjusting. I might be applying too strong an adjustment to it. Yeah. You know, because, like, Otani, like you said, like, everything is bonkers about Otani, but. Right. It's uh, hard to maintain the same bonkers energy when when we have been talking about that all season, right? So, yeah, right. we know it's bonkers, but we've acclimated to the bonkersness slightly. I never want to just accept, oh, ho-hum, yeah, Otani had a 10-war two-way season, but – you know, there's only so many times you could talk about it without uh, just at some point saying this no longer knocks me over because right. uh, I've I've been knocked over already. I'm still on the ground. I've, I yeah. still have not recovered from all the previous times that I contemplated this. Oh, I was just about to say something very sad about Otani. It's like you're lying prone on the ground like, mm. <laughs> get well soon, Shoei. We, we. Yeah. Sure miss you, you know? We, we have to come up with so much more content for this show now that he's hurt my stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to decide what games I'm going to watch and take the angels off the board when I'm you making my, my MLB just, TV decisions. I'm just going to encourage you to, like, not watch the Mariners ones. Like, we mm. should just, you know, we can divide and conquer, and I'm already, you know, let me be the sin eater here, you know? Okay. I'm already incurring this sadness. You don't have to subject yourself to that. I'll let you know how it goes. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll assess your mental state next time.
All right, let me leave you with a few responses from listeners to topics we discussed last week. This first message comes from David, who wrote in about the Blue Jays' history of great sleepers, at least one previous great sleeper. He said, Freddie Galvis, who at the time was the league leader in consecutive games by a long shot, was also apparently an epic sleeper, though perhaps not as heroic as Kikuchi. Galvis acknowledged what this meant for his role as a parent and the work it created for his wife. He links to a Sportsnet piece that says, Galvis watches what he eats in the hopes of staying healthy, but most important of all might be the rest he gets. He sleeps a lot during the season from 12 or 1 a.m. until about 11 a.m. and credits his wife for making that possible. When their two daughters aged one and four need attention, she's typically the one who takes care of them. So I don't know. Maybe it's something about being north of the border. Maybe there's a sleep exchange rate we have to apply. Maybe this is hours of Canadian sleep. It's different from hours of U.S. sleep. I'm a dual citizen. I'm definitely more American when it comes to sleep hours, if so. Also, we talked about player headshots and amusing ones, and we mentioned the three-year progression of Robert Andino's headshots, where he got progressively less happy in his headshots when he was with the Orioles. I said something about how that may be the thing that Robert Andino is best remembered for. Got some responses from Orioles fans who stuck up for him. Dan says, just wanted to mention that Robert Andino is moderately famous among Orioles fans in the know for the curse of the Andino. It was the final game of the 2011 season for the Orioles and Red Sox, and Boston was sitting on a precarious wildcard spot. Andino's walk-off hit in the ninth, combined with Evan Longoria's walk-off homer against the Yankees moments later, took Boston out of the wildcard spot and put Tampa in. It was very exciting and cathartic for an Orioles team that was not yet good, but would return to relevance in 2012. Not that the fans knew that then. And yeah, I guess the curse of the Andino didn't last quite as long as the curse of the Bambino, given that the Red Sox won a World Series in 2013. But still, I had forgotten that he was part of that exciting end to the 2011 regular season. Another email on that subject from Patreon supporter Joe. I wanted to respond to Ben's offhand comment about no one remembering Robert Andino for anything other than his sad baseball reference pictures to report that he is something of a folk hero for Orioles fans of a certain vintage. He had a game-ending single off Jonathan Papelbon to win the final game of the 2011 season for the O's and eliminate the Red Sox from playoff contention that year. Of course, a lot of the fun of this for Orioles fans was to deny the Red Sox an opportunity to go to the playoffs. Red Sox and Yankees fans typically travel very well to Camden Yards, and this was especially true in the years the Orioles were a consistent losing team after Cal Ripken's retirement. It felt nice that the Orioles showed some fight and struck a blow against one of the giants of the AL East. It's hard to feel too bad for the Red Sox, though. After the incredibly cursed 2012 season they had with Bobby Valentine, they did win the World Series in 2013. More importantly to me, Andino's hit represented the end of an era of Orioles baseball and the beginning of a new one. 2011 was Buck Showalter's first season with the team, and though they had a typically poor record of 69-93, to in the 2012 season, they reversed that record and made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years. Starting in 2012, they were on and off contenders through the 2016 season. Though Andino remained on the team only for the 2012 season, his hit at the end of 2011 felt like it heralded the beginning of a positive stretch of Orioles baseball, albeit a short one, and reminded fans that the Orioles were capable of making an impact in the baseball world. Sometimes it's surprising the fondness that a fan base will have for a somewhat obscure player. Just a lot of reasons to be attached to a player and someone who's not in the know, who doesn't follow that team closely, might never know about or might forget about that bond. So thank you for the reminders. Also, we talked about player retirement tours and I think Meg mused about what the retirees do with their gifts that they're given by other teams. Carter says, I was listening to episode 2063 and thought the discussion of post-retirement gifts was fun and interesting. And it made me think of the Rays, Devil Rays at the time, giving Wade Boggs a fishing boat for his 3,000th hit. I did a Google search, and it turns out Boggs has since put the boat up for auction in 2015. 
He links to an ESPN article and says, while there isn't any information that I can find on him actually being able to sell the boat, the article mentions that this isn't even the first time he'd done it. He tried to sell it before then, but was unsuccessful and was packaging a fishing trip with Boggs with the boat as an extra incentive for people to submit bids. When asked about the reasoning for it, he mentioned going on some hunting trips and saying he could use the extra cash. So yeah, those retirement tour gifts may not be lifelong possessions. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep us going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Aaron Plotsky, Chris Reed, Matt Piscatella, Andrew Perlman, Taman, and Jabron Riaz. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as access to playoff live streams and monthly bonus episodes, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. But anyone and everyone is welcome and encouraged to contact us via email at podcast.fancrafts.com. Send us your questions and comments. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Tony, le stack last, live before his so chouette. Les avis pédantes et super, une fête. Je pense que c'est effectively cool. Je pense que c'est effectively wild. Effectivement sauvage. Effectivement sauvage. <laughs>